How are you? Hey, Justin. Nice to see you. I think, I think the, the big difference between you and me these days is uh, I, I was able to go out and get a haircut this week. Yeah, we're going to talk about that um, because I have not gone out and gotten a haircut. But if I was blaming it on um, needing to quarantine, it would probably not be fair blame. My, uh, my wife likes it long, and now that it's long, I kind of like it, Greg. I, I, I went three months, and uh, it was driving me insane. <laughs> I don't, it, it, it was as long as I'd had it in college, and, and it was just time to get a cutoff. So I, I, I braved the odds, and I went to a barbershop. Where are you physically right now? I am at my parents' house in Northwest Georgia, about 45 minutes west of Atlanta. All right. And I am in College Station. You are in College Station. And uh, how hot was it for you yesterday? I have not left for months. <laughs> well, Seriously, I think this is the longest period I haven't been on an airplane since I got down here and maybe in the last two decades. Yeah. No, I, uh, I was been joking, telling several friends that I don't think I had been, I don't think I had slept in the same bed for more than a week in a row um, since the previous summer. And I don't think I had done it for more than two months since college. I mean, just with all the traveling and things. And um, it's, uh, it's been nice. So let's see, Faith is reaching out to me here. She says we are good to go. All right. Um, let's see, am I missing anything? Okay. So with the thumbs up from Faith, let's jump right in. Greg, I'm sure everyone was happy to uh, hear about our quarantining uh, lifestyles and our haircuts. Our haircuts and lack thereof. <laughs> uh, we're back. Uh, it's been since, uh, I guess, April since we checked in with you. Um, and uh, you know, with COVID-19 going on throughout March and April, I had assumed that uh, that would kind of dominate the conversation throughout the summer. I thought we had said kind of what we needed to say about that. And uh, one, it seems to be that uh, COVID's only improving on some fronts. Globally, the numbers are still up. So maybe we still need to be talking about that. Um, and also uh, with uh, the killing of George Floyd and the uh, uh, worldwide global protest and response, um, as kind of just two big talking points that, uh, that we've missed. And, um, you know, the unemployment numbers have continued to go up. There was what seemed like some misreporting of some numbers, but we're up around, I think, 42 million people um, um, making initial unemployment insurance claims. So I don't know if it's good luck or bad luck that we're back on air. I, I, maybe we should just stay on air because it feels like things got a little bit uh, crazier when we uh, took a little break, Greg. There's plenty to talk about, that's for sure. I, I mean, I think that the killing of George Floyd and the, the, not just the nationwide, but the worldwide reaction to it has been remarkable. Uh, I mean, to some extent, it, it, it's even more remarkable that, it, uh, that the killing and the, and the demonstrations in the United States have sparked, have led to and inspired demonstrations around the world. I mean, I think back to the Arab Spring uh, of 2011, where protests spread across the Arab world in, in a matter of days, if not weeks. Uh, and 
And it is one of the elements of the instantaneous communications, but it can't just be communications. It's also the sense that what's happening in the United States you know, is seen as relevant for people in other parts of the world. Uh, and, and you know, what's happening in Hong Kong, perhaps seen as relevant for people in the United States as a model. I, it's hard to establish cause and effect here, but, but the indisputable fact is that uh, demonstrations, widespread demonstrations in the United States against uh, racial injustice have also sparked off demonstrations in other parts of the world on that very same topic. So I, I think that, that it's, uh, it's fascinating and its consequences are uh, still developing. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it seems to have uh, gotten the at least Western world um, and in large part in the Eastern world's attention um, as both as like as you said, protests have spread and other countries, governments that we would traditionally think of as certainly more authoritarian than the U.S. seeing it as an opportunity to to highlight some of the flaws in the U.S.'s own system. Um, and it's kind of nice that people are finally just talking about this out in the open, right? So this, our students at the Bush School, part of what we've done with the podcasting with um, uh, one of our introductory courses is they go and search out kind of what they think some of the pressing policy issues are that are leading to the most unnecessary suffering in the country and we come back over and over to needing serious reform for the for the whole criminal justice system i mean the conversation has been around uh law enforcement um and systematic kind of inequalities and uh the methods that law enforcement use all these things are kind of well documented both from uh how the more harsher tactics are used and who they're used against and all the way up to you know inequalities and in sentencing and inequalities of who's charged for what uh, that stem back all the way to the country's founding, for sure. But from a policing angle, you know, kind of ramped up under the guise of the drug war um, under Nixon. I mean, the racial undertones of what what made the U.S. a mass imprisoned society was was done clearly out of um, um, racial motivation under the guise of, of drugs. And it's, we're living with that legacy now. We're living with the legacy of extra military equipment from, uh, from modern wars uh, that we've kind of distributed to local police departments, which kind of sets a cultural tone that doesn't make a lot of sense and in general what we want in our communities. And so, you know, I, I have to say I'm, I'm – I'm happy that the general conversation has moved from just are you for police officers or against police officers or are you for the flag or against the flag? Like we, we had to break through that to have conversations about accountability, about transparency, about racial injustice, systematic inequality that these, these institutions um, broadly the criminal justice area, but also law enforcement, just extremely well documented in the U.S. that this is a problem that we, we have to fix, we have to address. And so I'm glad that there's worldwide protest. It's not just here in the U.S. where this is a problem. I'm glad that the protests have managed to be overwhelmingly peaceful to help force change. And you do see already in response to the protests, local and state governments 
taking action um, to try to figure out, now there's a whole array of policies that may or may not work, but trying to just take action to see what might help with um, having stronger accountability in some of these areas where we just clearly have not had the oversight that is, that is needed in a modern society of our criminal justice system writ large and in particularly of law enforcement. Yeah, I think that this opens up more than conversations, right? I mean, it has to lead to action. And it seems to me that there are actions that, that need to be taken immediately in the two areas that you emphasized, the law enforcement and, and the tactics of law enforcement and the, and, and the purposes of, the, the rethinking of the purposes of law enforcement and the styles of, the style of law enforcement that I think has to be done mostly at a local and state level because that's, that's where the police are, right? They're in the municipalities, they're, in, they're, they're at the state level. Uh, federal government does have a role to play here. I think, you know, you talked about the militarizing of the police. A lot of that is a post 9-11 mm -hmm. uh, reaction. Uh, and, and I think it's been on the whole uh, negative. Uh, one, one might understand the original impetus. I mean, if there were going to be more terrorist attacks in the United States, local law enforcement would be the first responders. And, but it, it hasn't worked out that way. Uh, and, and I think that the, a reassessment of, of, of what public safety at the municipal and the state level means and how it should be accomplished is, as you said, overdue. Uh, you know, you, you know policemen, I know policemen, right? A lot of what they do isn't what we would consider police work, you know, from watching television shows and movies, right? It's, it, it's, it's work that would better be handled by people who, are, uh, who, have, who have a public health background or a, a, a background in social work, uh, a, a lot of the calls, of course, are, are, domestic, are, are domestic disputes and domestic violence. Maybe in a domestic violence call, you need a policeman. But you know, in a domestic dispute, somebody who's trained in mediation and de-escalation would probably be more effective. The other, the other area that you mentioned is the carceral state, right? And, and, and we can trace it back to the drug legislation of the 60s and 70s, the, the law and order movement in the Nixon administration. We could trace it further back in the systemic racism of earlier eras of the country. But it does seem to me that even before the killing of George Floyd, there was some increased recognition on both sides of our polarized political system, uh, even among some Republicans, that the, the carceral system was was broken and that it, we, we just we had too many people incarcerated in the u.s and certainly too many people of color incarcerated for crimes that white folks don't get incarcerated for and it seems to me that that those are two things that that you know we've been having conversations on and now's the time for action and the politics of this are going to be very very interesting right if we think back to 68 right, after uh, widespread demonstrations, including violent demonstrations, uh, that characterized 67 and 68, particularly 1968, uh, 
you know, the Nixon administration, uh, Richard Nixon ran, you know, one election in a very close election on a law and order platform. And, and you had this law and order turn in much of our politics. Uh, will we have that kind of backlash vote in 2020? It does seem like President Trump is, uh, is counting on that, right? He's already put himself forward as the law and order president, right? With all caps. So it'll be really interesting to see whether the, the largely peaceful and, and widespread protests here uh, in response to the killing of George Floyd will set a different tone in terms of, of, of how, uh, you know, the median voter looks at, at these issues. But it does seem like the, the well, we'll see what the, the Biden campaign comes up to, but it does seem like this might be a stark choice in 2020 between a 1968 style law and order campaign versus a campaign that would be willing to open up these questions that we've been talking about. So I think it seems to me that two things stem from our earlier conversation that I want to make sure that we hit uh, because I think both of them are really important. And one is what I see is a uh, you put it as a rise in kind of a law and order mindset of the president. Some, it, you could, it could maybe also be described as a rise of strongman politics or authoritarianism. Um, and so one of the things I want to talk about is the president's response to what have been largely peaceful protests and why that's uh, had some kind of establishment, long-term uh, establishment Republicans offering a variety of rebukes, um, Vote, some naming the president directly, um, others not, others directly calling him a threat to the Constitution. And so I think there is something uh, about the president's actions over the last two months that are even of a darker flavor than, um, than some of the things that he's done in the past um, and crossing some new lines. So I want to make sure we, we come back to that, uh, we get to that. Before we move on from this, I, I want to highlight too that you know, we only really talked about the police brutality aspect of this, um, of the George Floyd killing and, and, and how it ties to the criminal justice system. But one of, the, one of the other things that I think that we need to make sure we highlight is how much of this is about systematic inequality and sy systematic racial inequality as well. And so part of the, what we're seeing in some of the pushback uh, uh, is against police brutality, but also institutional systematic factors that privilege some groups and um, are discriminatory towards other groups. And this is part of the Black Lives Matter movement's platform. Um, and so I think, you know, part of, and, and part of what I think we need to discuss too with some of the conversations we've been having at the Bush School is the degree to which a lot of this just builds from institutional and systematic um, systematic racism. And people are saying, you know, that our culture is multicultural enough now uh, on average throughout for people to say like, this just isn't, we're not okay with these kind of systematic differences across our society that are in no way due um, to, to chance or to effort. And the American ideal should be about people having at least, I think, 
kind of an equal st starting point or an equal process that puts them through the, the system so that you and I have the same options as some of our students of color or, or black men in particular. Um, and so I, I just want to make sure we hit on that as a, as a piece of this uh, discussion as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that the emphasis on criminal justice issues and, and police tactics is appropriate in that some of those things can be changed relatively quickly. At least the legal frameworks and the, inst the, 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 the standard operating procedures of, of public safety officials can be changed relatively quickly. Uh, the deeper consequences of you know, the original sin of, of the founding of America, which is uh, you know, uh, slavery and, and uh, the white supremacy that, that justified African, the African slave trade, uh, the systematic consequences of that in terms of inequalities, of opportunity at the economic level, housing, educational opportunities. Uh, those are things that I think will take a lot longer to remedy. So I, I, I can understand why the initial reaction to the killing of George Floyd was these issues that were you know, immediately in front of us in terms of the video. But you're right, I don't think that, that the underlying issues, or let me put the underlying consequences of systemic racism uh, are as easily amenable to uh, short-term fixes. Uh, that's to me the harder public policy question. You know, if it involves reparations, what does that mean? I think that that's a, I think that that is the next step in this debate. Uh, you know, just how exactly does reparations, which is a, a particular African-American issue, right? It's, how does one do that in a way that attempts to redress some of these economic and social consequences of systemic racism? You know, I, I haven't, I haven't read into this issue as much as, as maybe I would like to, but my initial reaction is, you know, one check to African American, to, you know, each African American in the United States might not be the best way to do that. Uh, so I think that, that the next step, you know, after the, 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 the police, brutality issue and, and the, the, the more general issue of public safety and then the, the criminal justice and the carceral issues is I think we get into, we get into just what exactly would a reparation system look like that would try to redress some of the consequences of systematic racism. Yeah, and hopefully um, we find some quality processes democratic cultural processes for engaging all the appropriate stakeholders. Um, you know, there are some examples of, of societies grappling with their treatment of groups within those societies and doing it and doing it well. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and it, it, it kind of involves to your point, a long sustained process 
where everyone's at the table and heard and part of the part of the conversation for making a change that can allow the cultural cultures to hear, allow the cultures to heal um, across them. And um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that that's where this conversation goes. Uh, It's one of the troubling things about having the current president who um, is known to stoke racial tensions and us versus them um, because it would be really nice if there was some some leadership kind of at the national level helping us through this this difficult conversation and um, before we move on from it I think it's you know this is part of what we're a conversation we're trying to have at the Bush School and that we've been having at the Bush School um, around uh, around diversity and inclusion um, and how we play a leadership role as an institution um, in being welcoming and inclusive of all different types of people, not only just kind of in our admissions process, but in the culture that we build at the Bush School. And, you know, I, I, there's been some, some conversations around this amongst the students, amongst the faculty, amongst the, amongst the dean, as uh, our, diversity and, our Student Government Association's Diversity and Inclusion Committee um, put out a statement um, supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. We could talk more about the, the statement, but essentially put a letter out in support, condemning white supremacy, condemning white supremacy and the role that it played at the founding of the country uh, and how it's continued to permeate institutions. And, you know, they were, the students were then undercut by an, um, an associate dean within the organization who later then apologized um, and, um, the dean has issued a couple of different statements on this, uh, you know, essentially in support of the students um, and in support of their uh, of their statement, but you know, even more support of beginning a dialogue with all the stakeholders at the Bush School to figure out how we address these concerns. Um, and you know, it was as part of this. I, there's been a lot of hurt, um, and I've spoken with you know former students that were part of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Uh, former students of mine, um, and they were uh, hurt by the way in which our institution responded. And so I think we've, we've got to do a better job. I think there are some uh, really strong signals coming from the dean's office that, um, that he wants to have a conversation with the student body, with the faculty, with the staff, with the alums, with the stakeholders on how, how we can do better and how we can continue to play a leadership role in creating a diverse and an inclusive organization, inclusive organization. Yeah, I think the Dean is uh, taking steps in that direction. I liked his email uh, on uh, what last Friday, I guess, uh, on that, on like well, maybe it was Sunday. All the days run together when you're a prisoner. <laughs> when you're Zooming from home all the time. When you're a prisoner of your house, all the days run together. But the, the statement that the Dean put out to the, to the Bush School community, uh, I thought was a good start, but you're right. I mean. This is occasion where people have to be heard and, and there has to be some honest conversations and uh, some change. So one of, the, uh, one of the other things that I wanted to make sure we talk about um, is it feels like, uh, so I, I was publicly concerned when Donald Trump became the Republican nominee. I was publicly against uh, him in the election in 2016. I do recall that. <laughs> I, do, I do recall 
Um, I, you know, rang the door, all the doorbells I could find, tweeting with people I knew from a variety of my communities to not vote for, for, for uh, Donald Trump. And he was elected and, you know, COVID-19 response by all leadership accounts has been a, just a monstrous disaster. Responses to trying to come up with a stimulus package. We did, we did get some short-term stimulus in people's hands. Um, so it's not that, you know, there weren't any positive things uh, done, but kind of, then there was the health, the public health response uh, for how we should respond as a country and just failed leadership all over at the top uh, that now makes wearing a mask a political issue, it turns out. Um, and, you know, all the way, um, all the way up to, uh, to, to protests and then the, the president's response. So I, I guess I just wanted to say, like, it feels like we crossed a new line with the photo op. I don't know what your sense of this is. I get lost in, you know, is, is putting children in cages the real line of somewhere that I thought we shouldn't pass as a country anymore? Is it like, is, you know, what, what, is my, what is my line? And clearing out peaceful protesters before curfew with what seems to have been tear gas and aggressive forces to make a photo op campaign ad to hold a Bible in front of a religious uh, building. It seemed to be the, the point where uh, George W. Bush and Jim Mattis and others were like, that's enough. No, this is, this is a danger to the constitution. So I, yeah, it was an appalling display. I mean, I, I don't think that, I, I have a hard time thinking anyone would think of it as anything but an appalling display, but maybe that means that I don't have my finger on the pulse of the country. I think the, the elite reaction to it was very interesting in a couple of ways. I think the most important, I think the most important and most interesting thing to me, to the, the, the reaction was the way he immediately lost the military. Mm -hmm. uh, if there's one thing that, uh, military officers don't want to do is they don't want to deploy troops domestically. Yeah. Uh, and the president seemed to think that he had pretty much uh, untrammeled right to send federal troops anywhere he wanted, which of course is not legally the case. But in Washington, DC, it's a different story, obviously. Uh, I think that the fact that he had the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the latter in his battle dress, uh, walk with him across Lafayette Square was uh, crossed the line for the military. And you could see almost immediately that uh, the Secretary of Defense, almost immediately when he gets back to the Pentagon, finds out that he's lost the building. And he immediately walks uh, the next, you know, Wednesday morning. He basically says, uh, we're not deploying federal troops. He immediately lost General Mattis, who clearly had very little respect for the president, but refused to speak out against him, which I, I, you know, all respect to General Mattis, but he had been critical of President Obama about things mm -hmm. and yet hadn't been critical about President Trump. And, and so I was gratified to see that he was explicitly critical of the president's handling of civil military relations 
and, and the, the, the right of peaceful protest in this. But, you know, it's more than General Mattis. A number, uh, a couple chair, past chairs of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Mullen and General Dempsey, who are, are pretty low profile, both made public statements uh, condemning the, 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 president, the, the, the president's use of the military as a symbol in the photo op and the intimations that the president wanted to deploy uh, the regular uh, military, not the National Guard, uh, against peaceful protest. So I, I, found, I found that heartening and interesting first. Second, I found it really interesting that a number of the, the armed uh, troops that were deployed into Washington, D.C. were deployed, in essence, by the Attorney General. Right? They were deployed from the Federal Bureau of Prisons, which is directly under the Attorney General's control. They were deployed from uh, Customs and Border Patrol, from Homeland Security, but apparently at the, uh, at the instigation of the Attorney General. So I think it was very interesting and troubling that the Attorney General was taking, if you will, a command role in this, uh, he apparently was the one who ordered the uh, Lafayette Park cleared. And I, I thought that that was a disturbing sign. I'm not sure that's the Attorney General's job. Thirdly, and then I'll, and then I'll, I'll kick it back to you, because I, I think we do want to talk about the political ramifications of this going forward for the election a bit. Uh, thirdly, it, the, the the events of, of Lafayette Park just uh, intensified the split, the, the split in the Republican Party. You know, on the one hand, you have Mitt Romney, you know, walking with protesters. Eventually, you had George W. Bush, the the, the previous Republican president, come out with a pretty strong statement. But then you had one of the rising stars of the Republican Party, Senator Cotton from Arkansas, basically echoing President Trump's desire to send in federal troops. And I think, you know, from what we've seen subsequently, that was his uh, application letter to be Secretary of Defense. All right, we subsequently know from reporting just in today's Wall Street Journal, yesterday's Wall Street Journal, that uh, the president seriously considered firing Secretary Esper on that Wednesday. And I think Senator Cotton was saying, hey, look at me. You wanna deploy troops? I'm with you. And he's a, he's, he's a rising star in the Republican Party. So the Republic, it, it kind of laid bare some of, the, some of the divides in the Republican Party, which I think are uh, important as our politics goes forward. Yeah, I um, I think the the desire. Uh, so I I read some bits from the president's phone call with the governors. You know, calling them weak and encouraging them to use more force. The Secretary then, of Defense calling American cities the battle space. Mm -hmm. 
and um, and then Lafayette Park. Um, the other piece of this that is uh, kind of stems back to some of the police brutality issues, but you know, there's been a couple of a couple of hundred over 300 incidents where journalists have been arrested um, as part of as part of this as well, with no kind of condemnation from the, the president. Um, and it, um, you know, I try not to be alarmist because it's not good for my health. Um, and I think it loses its, its uh, kick when you go around being alarmist all the time. But I mean, my honest takeaway was that, that the country's in distress. Um, that after hit, after hit, after hit, then with terrible leadership moving in on authoritarian direction, making vocal pleas, to release mil military on American citizens felt like the lowest point of the presidency to date. And um, I think it's really frightening um, in ways that in polite conversation are hard to kind of talk about um, because we're kind of in our own political tribes, frustrated about one thing or another. But I'm as, I'm as concerned as I've ever been for just basic democratic norms and how long institutions with leaders at the top of them that are encouraging and pushing for violence on American citizens, how long can, how long can those institutions stand that? I mean, how long before these kind of rag, these other groups directed by the attorney general are just enlarging and they don't, they're not accountable to anyone but the attorney general. And I think this is, is really concerning. And, you know, I've talked about, I want to get to talking about social media and leaving social media, but it's left me with just, you know, to some, to a little bit of criticism, but just to put my, to put the flag upside down because I'm, I feel like the country is in distress in a moment that I, I don't have any parallels for. So as the older, wiser man of this tag team, um, uh, tell me the ways in which I'm overreacting. Uh, you know, people from outside the country keep calling me worried about me <laughs> and yeah. our general safety as like free speaking intellects. Um, so, you know, what's your take? So I might be older, but I'm certainly not wiser. Uh, <laughs> well, with me as the comparison point, you have to be wiser, Greg. <laughs> so the, the only point of comparison I have in my lifetime is 68. And I was 10 years old, so you can all figure out how old I was. <laughs> uh, but I, I was, you know, a political junkie back then. I lived in a, in a city that, uh, I lived in the suburbs of a city, Wilmington, Delaware, that, that had demonstrations and riots, which the National Guard was called out. The Guard was in the streets of Wilmington, Delaware, longer than any other city in the United States after the 68 mm. events. And so I, I do recall 68. Uh, and I, 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 in my memory, it was more serious and less serious. So why was it more serious? Uh, because of the violence that was associated with a lot of the protests, because of the National Guard being called out in so many places, because of, uh, of the, the demonstrations and the violence at the 68 convention. Police violence as well, not, not 
of course. Uh, I remember, I remember John Chancellor, who who was, uh, you know, went on to become the the anchorman for NBC News back at a time when, you know, the anchors of the network evening news were were important people in the way we got our information, as opposed to now. Uh, he he was arrested on the floor of the Democratic convention, covering it. And he, he signed off, you know, this is John Chancellor, NBC News, somewhere in custody. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was, that, that was a, a, a frightening time. But it was, it was, I guess, less frightening because even as a 10-year-old, I felt that the, guard ra- the guardrails were stronger in terms of, of our ability to to manage ourselves even in crisis. The institutional guardrails were stronger. Uh, Maybe I was kidding myself. Uh, We saw those institutional guardrails later in Watergate with the impeachment and then resignation of of President Nixon. Uh, But I'm more worried, I'm more worried now about the level of polarization in, in our politics, removing some of the guardrails, uh, which is why, of course, this next election is, is going to be, I think, extremely important. You know, we always say that the next election is the most important election of your lifetime. But um, it's hard for me to remember an election that I voted in that I felt was more important than this one coming up. It's, it's a combination of, of the president's, you know, misfeasance in, the, in, 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 in just the basic, the basic, right? He, he kind of doesn't know how to pull the levers to make the government run in a way that serves the citizens. Uh, so it's, 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 you know, some of it's malfeasance, you know, when he appoints his son-in-law to, to be, you know, the, 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 the alternate uh, coronavirus uh, administrator. But mostly, uh, a fair amount of it is misfeasance and nonfeasance. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but part of it is also a, a, an agenda that plays to, uh, that tries to heighten the divisions in the country, uh, along racial lines, along regional lines, along ideological lines. Uh, and so I'm, I'm uh, I think it's a pretty important election. Well, I guess that means we're going to have to get together and talk about it some more. This uh, yeah. six weeks without talking thing, uh, we're just going to have to remedy. Uh, yeah. So you're, you're, I'm sitting in Texas, you're sitting in Georgia. Mm-hmm. How likely is it that, uh, that a backlash campaign, a law and order campaign, can mobilize enough voters to reelect the president? It seems uh, unlikely, I think. Um, the folks that I would expect to be mobilizing aren't really mobilizing they kind of had enough, right? Like, so they're frustrated, of course, uh, in the kind of these rural areas with uh, with Democrats. That's 
part of it. Um, but there seems to be a sense of like, I'm just done with this. This was too much. Like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, following a sports team that just asks too much of you at some point. Like, yeah, we're still on your team, but I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl this year. Or I might show up for the Super Bowl, but I'm not going to be that enthusiastic because you were a jerk. Um, and I've been having a crappy time and things are worse than they were before. And so I, um, I've heard, I hear um, uh, conversations among people who would have supported Trump in 2016 out where I am now being much less kind of excited about it. And they seem to your point kind of split a little bit. Some people are like doubling down, like they're kind of following the narrative hook, line and sinker. Um, and then some are just kind of like, we're just done. Um, I don't know many of the, of the Mitt Romney types. They're not, I don't know many of those in this region, but even within the camp that was, they weren't ever really never Trumpers are now like, oh, well, yeah, we want something different. And he's caused a lot of headache. Uh, seems to be kind of the, the takeaway. Now there's a lot of time. And for a few days when the protests were having some more violent elements, I got the sense that that could have turned, uh, that could have escalated in a hurry, uh, at least from some reasonable portion of the reasonable size portion of the population. Um, but when the protests started turning more peaceful and the only videos floating around were, uh, you know, police officers knocking down a 75 year old man on the steps of, of a building, I think all humans can see that, that the, protests are mostly peaceful and the response has not always matched that. Yeah. I, I certainly the poll numbers indicate that it was a, it's been a bad two weeks for president. Right. I mean, uh, and, and I think that the, the discipline of these protests and kind of the self policing among the protesters themselves has been remarkable. Uh, you know, there are obviously elements in any large-scale protests that want to act as provocateurs. And, you know, there's some are, people are just knuckleheads. But it, it's remarkable how disciplined these protests have been. Uh, you know, we, we talked about how widespread they are. How disciplined they are, I think, is a, a, a really interesting fact. But coming back around to COVID, I wonder if, if the demonstrations, even though many, many people in the demonstrations masked up, I wonder if that's the end of social distancing. Uh, you know, we were getting to a point where kind of one had a feeling that public tolerance of, of lockdowns and social distancing requirements at all were, were people were coming to the end of their rope on that anyway. Uh, and now you have kind of the, 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 the left end of the political spectrum, which seem to be more supportive of those kinds of, of restrictions in, in, in the name of public health, uh, have for very understandable reasons decided that the, the events of around George Floyd's killing were more important than the public health, possible public health ramifications of large scale protests. But it does seem to me that, you know, 
all this is happening at a time when you're, you're seeing, you know, Texas move to phase three, even though we haven't met the original uh, goalposts for changing phases in terms of flattening our curve, our cases are still going up. Uh, you have, you know, all over the country, uh, the lifting of, of restrictions, in many cases justified by flattened curves. Uh, you know, we're talking, we're talking at school about how we're gonna restart in the fall, how we're gonna welcome students back. So, uh, and, and more importantly, I think, you know, uh, primary and secondary schools around the country are talking about how they're going to, to reopen come the fall. So I, I, I have this sense that kind of social distancing is over. Let's hope that mask wearing uh, becomes more widespread as we, as we uh, social distance less. And let's hope that uh, the fast tracks to vaccines and uh, antiretrovirals and all those things are, uh, are successful. But, uh, you know, I, I could see, a, I could see a, a, a second wave. I mean, to some extent, we haven't gotten out of the first wave in, in Texas. And in some other states, we're seeing second waves. So, uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about COVID too, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I don't suspect it uh, goes away. You know, I, as you may remember, and people that follow along may remember uh, in February, or excuse me, in March, when we were having these conversations, all the modeling, and you and I talked about this, was on social distancing, extreme, pretty extreme social distancing measures through the end, I think it was of June. Um, and my comment to you and to several other people was, we'll never make it, we'll never make it. And there's a couple reasons why our economy isn't designed to, in fairness, I'm not sure any economies are designed to just be stop so it's not a, a knock necessarily on this particular system it highlights some need for some uh redundancies maybe and some built-in capacity uh to strategic capacity so you know it's uh it's highlighting it's highlighting that but we were we were never going to stay shut down and there's a there's a question in my mind um if we even want to stay shut down I mean, not a question it's it's the question of the the argument for staying shut down was to protect uh, hospitals from being overwhelmed. We knew that we couldn't just stay shut down until whenever, until we've eradicated the coronavirus. So the way in which we, the way in which we do that matters, and some states have been more aggressive in, in signaling that they want things to go back to normal. And this comes back to, I think, what's so challenging about a lack of national leadership and a lack of a lot of state leadership is then who ends up enforcing public health stuff it's just pushed all the way down to individual people working at at the mall at delivery stores at, you know and they're having to do the policing and because because we have no plan and because we politicized the policing you know i have i have friends that you know have small businesses and they're having to wrestle with how do we how do we help maintain appropriate social distancing now that the stores are opening back up with, without causing uh, issues in our stores? And so it's another kind of way in which politicizing this has made it hard to, to, to even hamper the effort of when it became like, there's an argument that 
a smart openings now make a lot of sense. I think we need a smart opening. But when you you made the whole thing political, um, then it's hard for the the general public to know what to take seriously and what not to take seriously. You're 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 absolutely right. Uh, as disjointed as the public health reaction was, the economic reaction from the federal government, I think, gets higher marks. Uh, the Fed uh, basically opening up the the credit doors to, to try to sustain the credit markets and to sustain confidence in, in, in our economy. Uh, bipartisan legislation that not only uh, extended unemployment benefits, but added uh, an increase to those unemployment benefits given the, given the circumstances. The, the, the access to uh, small businesses, paycheck, paycheck protection legislation, uh, you know, a rough rollout, but seems to be helping. Uh, I'll give the administration, you know, passing grades. Uh, and, and the Congress, and it, this was bipartisan. But the question is, you know, given the, 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 given the, slim, the slim glimmers of some economic optimism with the, the downturn in the official unemployment rate last week, which, which might be an artifact of, of how we count, not actually, you know, a, a sign that the economy is improving. But, you know, these, these glimmers, I don't think could be, should be used as, as, uh, as evidence that we're out of this. You know, it seems to me that, that now's the time to borrow money to sustain the economy. And then we have to think about what that means longer term. And, you know, it, it's it, these, not just these events, but, you know, going back to the Great Recession have kind of radicalized me on this. You know, I, you know Elizabeth Warren, wealth taxes, eventually we, 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 we have to, take redistributive measures to sustain the kinds of expenses that the federal government needs to be taking on at this crisis point. Uh, and I think that that's, that can come back into the whole issue of how do we deal with uh, the economic and social consequences of, of generations of, of, of institutional racism and the economic and social consequences of that, you're gonna need money to deal with that. So, you know, I, I, I'm sounding like the public administration person here, Justin, but it, it, a lot of this comes back to fiscal policy. And, and that's gonna be a really interesting thing for the next administration. Uh, particularly if it's a democratic administration with democratic majorities in the House and Senate. What are we going to do to get our fiscal house in order in a way that reasonably redistributes income while building, right? While rebuilding the American infrastructure. Yeah, it, it seems like inflation shouldn't be your top worry at the moment. Um, no, deflation is the more is the is the more threatening thing than inflation right now. Yeah, I mean. Yes, I, it seems like a time to be borrowing cheap money to stimulate the economy because the long-term return on the American economy is high. 
Um, and at a time when we're still leading the world in technological innovation, among other things, you double down uh, on investing in the country rather than austerity. Uh, not everyone agrees in this, of course, but it's also um, where kind of modern economic theory is on this. This isn't even really super controversial anymore. I mean, there are some economists out there saying to the contrary, but the consensus is from kind of Nobel Prize winning economists is that you, you, you spend when you need to spend, uh, particularly when you have a strong market economy and you dominate the global currency. Um, but, but this has to be something that, that the federal government recognizes as a state level issue as well, right? The federal government can run deficits, most states cannot. And I, I think that the next round, you know, Secretary Mnuchin testified today that, that we need more economic stimulus, which I thought was encouraging. Mm -hmm. I did see uh, that. But there has to be some element of revenue sharing down to the state level and the local levels because, you know, when states have to balance their budgets, they have to fire people, right? They, they have to fire teachers, they have to fire firemen, they have to fire uh, bureaucrats. Uh, and and uh, that would be really bad for the economy. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so I think that, that, you know, on the immediate score, Democrats have to take this recognition from the administration that, that we need another stimulus and make sure that some of that money goes down to state and local governments so they can maintain employment levels. My fingers are crossed. I have several uh, public finance friends. Uh, as you know, one is our colleague, uh, Dr. Rob Greer. One is a- uh, Ooh. <laughs> you know, he used to be down the hallway from me and now I don't even know where, where any of us are in the hallways anymore. Um, well, you guys are gonna be on the second floor. I'll have to come up and visit. You'll have to come up and visit for sure. So um, I have, one thing I want to comment on as we wrap down, but my, my question to you, Greg, is six weeks is too long, and I think we should do it again in two weeks. I'm up for that. I'm not going anywhere, that's for sure. Good. How about two weeks at the same time and same, same location, and we can... Uh, let let me check my very busy calendar. Okay. I just checked two mine. Weeks. Two weeks is the 24th? Yep. Oh, surprise, surprise, I'm free. <laughs> no, no, plane, no plane flights for you. No, uh, no, no plane flights. No trips to the Middle East. No, <laughs> no trips to D.C. Well, the last thing I wanted to say uh, is bringing back to kind of within the Bush School family is um, just to say to the students, um, that I'd, I'd like to apologize for our initial response um, undercutting the Student Diversity and Inclusion Committee's letter. I've been very happy to see that the initial response was essentially retracted and apologized, that the Dean has come out in support of a conversation and meaningful change. And I've taught a lot of you that I know that are upset that have expressed your frustration with our response and what I'd like to say to you is reach out to me, reach out to the administration, be a part of helping us understand how to improve this. This is something that I think you have the attention of our leadership. Um, and now's the time to figure out some ways to implement change. I know groups are talking about this and starting to circulate some proposals. That's great. Um, 
let's have a dialogue together. And I said to Greg at the beginning, if, uh, if uh, a group of you, of a group of anyone or that is kind of interested in having conversations about this would like to talk with us or with me and have that as part of a podcast discussion that we put out to kind of have an outward facing conversation, um, I'm game. I would love to have that conversation. So let us know how we can help push the dialogue further and contribute to being a leader and making sure that all of our students feel welcome uh, in our educational environment. Greg? Well said. Thank you. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, thanks for those of you that joined us live. Thanks for those of you that are listening on the podcast stream. We'll and thanks to, thanks to Faith. Yeah. Despite the fact that she's graduated, has uh, continued to help us out on the technical side. We very, we very much appreciate it. And uh, Greg, it's good to see you. I love your haircut and you're making me jealous. Thanks. I, I, I feel like a, a new man. So I'll, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll cut my hair shorter. You let your beard grow out and we'll see if we can meet somewhere in the middle. I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, the, prime, the prime consumer of my faith would vote against that. <laughs> I have mine because the prime consumer of my face really likes it. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Uh, thanks for those of you that came out tonight. Um, and uh, it's good to see you, Greg, and look forward to doing it on June 24th at uh, 5 p.m. Central again. Very good. See you, Justin.